tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Dwayne Dunham, editor, director, and the original, original Boba Fett. Whether working with Marsha Lucas, watching a Razorhead with Stanley Kubrick, or his multiple decade working relationship with David Lynch, I was blown away by the talent and the enthusiasm that Mr. Dunham has for his art. And yes, we do talk about the Clone Wars he directed as well. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 60, Dwayne Dunham. Talk about Star Wars and, and Lynch and everything that you've worked on. What was the foundation of your love of movies and your love of editing and directing and, and making these things? You know, when I grew up, I grew up in Long Beach in Southern California. And uh, my good friend who lived across the street, his dad worked for NASA. And he had a, a space capsule in his backyard. <laughs> but his, his dad was a, was a camera buff. And for some reason, I'm not quite sure what the attraction was, but I... But I gravitated toward this little, probably eight millimeter camera that he had. And, you know, he'd give me certain hints. I'm pretty young at the time. And then when I was about, I would say I was probably about 10 or so, I saw Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen at the local theater. And I just, you know, what is this? This is unbelievable. And then several years later in the same theater, I saw The Graduate. And the, the combination of those two movies, you know, just said to me, I don't know what this is, but I got to, you know, kind of get involved in it. And I was already pretty active in <clears throat> making little, you know, movies with my friends, little surf movies or skateboard films or just goofing around in the neighborhood. And uh, one one day, I think, or one night, one of my father's friends said, we ran a little something that I had made. And he said, you know, you ought to put a coffee can by the front door here, and I'll bet you people put money in it. And I thought, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's try that. Anyway, it's, it's just been a long-time fascination and um, continues to be. What was the steps you took to make that a profession? Did you go to school, or what was kind of your thought process moving into to actually working in film? Following sort of a dream, <laughs> sort of um, being young enough that the responsibilities weren't so great that they were inhibiting, and pretty much going against the advice of family and friends uh-huh. who said, you know, you, you, the, you this is not you can't do this. You have no family in this business and, you know, you're not independently wealthy and, you know, all this stuff. And it didn't really matter to me. I was doing a lot of skiing, snow skiing, and I I went to school, film school in San Francisco. Um, But but I had this job in San Francisco with an Austrian ski manufacturer. And it was a great, great job. And so I knew you know, that's how I put myself through school was working for this ski company mm-hmm. and skiing. And it allowed me to, you know, be in film school. But also then I got associated with a lot of ski films that were being made and I'd either be talent in it or crew. And um, so I got to know that community a little bit while I was in school. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I, I got very, very lucky because <clears throat> as soon as I graduated, Literally, my car was packed and I was going to travel to Southern California to go to work with Warren Miller in Hermosa Beach making surf movies and ski films. And I got in my car and literally started the engine and my friend came out and said, 
hey, you've got a phone call. I think you want to take this? And so I went in, and it happened to be a past instructor I had from San Francisco State who was post-production supervisor on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he offered me a, an apprentice job, and I said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove across the bridge and over to Berkeley, and, and that's where it started. And that then led to getting a call from Lucas, and then I spent about seven-some-odd years with him, which then led to a call from Lynch, and I'd done a lot of work with David, and still, if either of those two guys were to call me and ask for my help, I would put everything aside and, and go help them. You know, those those are two really great guys and really, really influential in, in the whole sphere of filmmaking. So I've been very, very lucky. I would love to talk a little bit, because One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I mean, what an incredible way to start off, and I think even Richard Chu was, was part of that crew as well. Um, yes, was, Richard was one of the editors, yeah. What was it like then, jumping as an assistant editor to the Lucas movies, starting with Star Wars, moving into Empire and Raiders, uh, working with one of the people I think is one of the best editors of all time, Marshall Lucas, putting together what we now consider to be these, these classics? Um, Marsha is uh, a great film editor, and it's. Mm, I just finished a movie that Lynch was executive producer, and Marsha came in and, and did some editing oh, for a few great. weeks with and it was so much fun because, you know, you just, you, you recall that time and that time back in the early Star Wars day is there were no expectations. It was just a bunch of pretty young people, mavericks in the Bay Area, you know, making movies and outside of the Hollywood system. And, you know, it was pretty special that the guys that were up there, Francis and George and Michael Ritchie and... Uh, John Cordy and um, Phil Kaufman and Saul Zantz. You know, it just goes on and on and on. And, and you think of the amazing movies in the, like a 10-year period that came out of there. And again, I, I don't know, personally, I don't think that's ever going to happen again anywhere geographically like it did in San Francisco at that time in the mid, early to mid-70s. And it went for about almost 10 years and just an incredible output of really interesting movies, very creative work. But, you know, Marsha is a great film editor. George is genius. He is, his gift is as an editor. He is, you know, he thinks as an editor, he makes movies like an editor. And, and you know, one of his quotes is, Stephen will go out and, you know, shoot the movie. <laughs> And George will go out and just shoot stuff and then find the movie in the editing room. <laughs> uh -huh. I've never been around anybody who's got those kinds of instincts that, that George does in the cutting room. What was it like putting these movies together? On, on Return of the Jedi especially, you then were one of the co-editors of the actual film. What were you trying to pull from, you know, uh, whether it's different takes or, or different scenes? What was your goal in, in putting, especially Return of the Jedi, let's say, together? My goal was to do the best I possibly could and, and hopefully pass inspection with George. And, um, and I do remember the first scene that I cut, we were, it was during shooting and it, we were at Elstree and outside of London. And it, I think it was the robots a, approaching the Jabba's palace and then going in and, and, uh, you know, going down this long corridor and all these crazy, 
creatures come out and get the droids. <laughs> I remember I was nervous and I showed George that scene and he said, okay, great. That's fine. But we're going to reshoot that. <laughs> okay. I mean, one of this is now relatively common knowledge, but not only did you play a part, obviously with Star Wars and, and helping shape it in the editing room, but also you are uh, somewhat now infamously the first person to don the Boba Fett armor and then parade it around at the <laughs> San Anselmo Country Fair. I'm sure that was just a day or whatever, but you know that's kind of gone down in, in Star Wars lore. What was that like, you and Ben Burt just... <laughs> I know. Well, again, nobody, 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 trust me, nobody knew that Star Wars would go on and continue to be impactful today. And, and by the way, I think that they're doing a marvelous job with the Mandalorian. And I think with the introduction of the baby Yoda and the direction that they've been taking this and leaning more towards hope, which is what the first Star Wars was, was subtitled the new hope. Um, it could go on for another 50 years. Amazing. But n nobody ever expected anything like, like that. So, yeah, I want to say it was, yeah, it was before Empire because Boba, Boba Fett was an interesting new character. And I think it was a character that many thought would, would rival in popularity, Han Solo and Luke himself. And Norman Reynolds came over. He was a production designer uh, in England and he came over and he carried, hand carried that white Boba Fett suit because Boba was a super trooper and it just, there just weren't very many people, you know, at that time it was me <laughs> and Ben Burt and uh, technician, Howie Hammerman. It, I think it was the three of us and George was there. And of course, Norman and, you know, George look, took one look at this and, and looked at me and said, <laughs> put this on. You're about this size. Go yeah. you know, put this on. And, so that's it. And Ben grabbed a camera and he shot some stuff. And and it was just, what does this thing look like? And it had a flamethrower on the arm and it had a jet pack on the back. And But it was all white. And, and, you know, I think George thought it was too much like a stormtrooper. And he then asked, uh, I think it was Joe Johnston, uh, to paint it up and you know we put a we grabbed a star wars towel that was in one of the cutting rooms and used that as a cape and it you know kind of took on some semblance of of uh you know a spaghetti western and as a matter of fact in empire ben put spurs on boba fett he when he walks if you listen closely <laughs> you'll hear the ching 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 <laughs> um anyways that's how that happened and then it just coincided that there was this Marin Days uh, uh, parade in San Anselmo where where the studio was at the time and Vader and Boba were going to be the marshals of this parade and it was about a million degrees. I don't even remember who was wearing the Vader mm -hmm. suit but I can tell you at a certain point I said to Gary Kurtz, I said Gary I, we got to get out of this man. We're like... <laughs> yeah. We're gonna die in these suits. It's just Jeez. really, really hot. Need to just a, just a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <a little> bit. <laughs> so you know, nobody again, nobody thought anything of it. It just was our our local little town, small town parade, 
And, you know, Vader was the, was the star, but here was Boba Fett. Nobody had seen Boba Fett before and wondered who is this guy. And then you, you say, oh, he's an intergalactic bounty hunter. Well, that's so interesting in itself. And, and then, you know, I do think George was a little disappointed with, with, with Boba Fett, the introduction in Empire. And then he just didn't come off very well at all in, in return. And I remember one day, George, we were in the cutting room and he said, throw Boba in the pit. Let's get rid of him. And everybody said, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's Boba Fett. You can't get rid of him. Just toss him in the pit. No, toss him in the pit. Get rid of him. (laughs) And, and they couldn't get rid of him. You know, the, the public, yeah, for some reason he struck a nerve and you know he's he's the very very popular character in the lore of Star Wars. Yeah. Thirty years later, there's a book that comes out in an insider article that says Dwayne Dunham was the first Boba Fett, and then everyone yeah. everyone went wild. That's so great. Well, it was funny. I went up several years ago when they were still doing Clone Wars, and um, George asked me, and Walter Murch was part of that. Bob Dalva was part of that. He wanted us to kind of show the animators how it's done live action as opposed to drawing storyboards in one panel at a time and you know he he's always been a big proponent in uh moving forward with digital media that that could act as a powerful tool in the making of films and telling stories and yeah (laughs) so i was in the room with like five four or five guys on my team that were my artists and we're sitting down, I'm talking, and all of a sudden I notice there's this giant line forming outside of our door. <laughs> and, you know, this guy came in and he plopped down these magazines in front of everybody, and I sort of pushed mine over to the side and kept talking. And, and I, said, well, I said, what is going on out here? And the guy said, open your magazine. <laughs> they all want a, a autograph. <laughs> and I, could, I couldn't believe it. It's like, what? <laughs> That's so great. I love it. Well, I mean, I was going to talk about Clone Wars a little bit later, but those two episodes you did are very interesting because I'm actually doing a rewatch right now. And it really, it, the first one, especially Pursuit of Peace, I believe, kind of slows down the show yeah. and, and focuses on the dialogue and on the characters. And, you know, there is action, but it is almost kind of a, an interesting turning point for the show where it then focuses on more development than you would expect coming from a, a children's show. And then the second was all underwater and, and, and a really an incredible kind of feat. What was it like coming back uh, to Lucas and working through all of that and kind of a different medium you might not have been uh, used to? You know, I was fortunate enough to sit with George for many years and um, hear his comments over the years about emerging technology and digital and, you know, things that I just didn't even know what he was talking about at the time. And, uh, it was great to come back, and you're right about uh, that that first one that I did, and it specifically was dialogue heavy, and George wanted to, that's why he asked me to do that one, because it it was not full of action, and he wanted that to be an example that we can do these things that don't rely on, you know, one fight after another, because one of the things that for me, I think happens with the saga is there's just so many battles and, you know, a rebel will finally say there are too many of them. We got to get out of here. 
And, you know, you just kind of get tired of that. And, and that's why I think I personally have a lot of hope for uh, the Mandalorian. I think it can be a, a, a wonderful um, telling of the story. And it really harkens back to all the dialogue iconic references and the visual references. It, it, you know, I just, I, it tickles me every time I see, you know, something that harkens back to it, the first Star Wars or Empire and, and Jedi, that, that, those three. And, you know, so the, the thing in, in that first Clone Wars was, yes, it was dialogue-heavy, character-driven, and purposely so. And it was, it, what, it was a mind-blower to train your mind to this world of 3D, 3D animation, where walls don't exist. They do, they're there, but you can walk right through them. And, you know, once you wrap your head around, okay, this is the world of 3D, um, then, you know, then you kind of move forward from there, and it's pretty straightforward. Then the water world or water war, whatever it was, um, I think that was the pilot episode of maybe season four or something like that. But, you know, the the thing with that one was what I loved about it. It brought Akbar back. Yeah. <laughs> in Akbar. So familiar character. And it was so challenging because it was all underwater. And that meant, you know, the camera was as if a scuba operator was on camera and it's floating around independent of each of the characters and you know you've tried to give it a an interesting look and and uh you know keep it going and that one got really really big that's mm-hmm. it's pretty big and i kept going to dave filoni and i said dave i don't know man you know we had a i think there was a rule 1500 assets or something that meant you know, vehicles and additional characters. And, you know, you could have a total of like 1,500 outside of the the core, you know, characters. And I don't know what it got up to, but, you know, and I kept saying, Dave, if, if, we're, if, we, if we've got to pull stuff out, it's going to be a lot more painful to pull it out than it is <laughs> to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> and we just kept going. And yeah. Dave was great. George was great. And, you know, so there you go. That's fun. That's really fun. I mean, well, a, a different David, David Lynch. Well, how did you first get connected with David Lynch? I know George Lucas was a big fan of him, uh, and even I think tried to get him to direct Return of the Jedi at one point. Uh, how did you initially kind of come into contact and start this incredible working relationship? Well, I'll tell you, it's kind of uh, funny, and I'll uh, I'll try to be brief. But we were in England in Elstree, and. I would ride to and from the studio each day with George. Mm-hmm. I would always stay in a hotel down the street from him. And he liked to move around London. So he kind of lived in different parts of the the city. And, and so we'd move around, but I'd ride to and from every day with him. And we were, we were shooting Empire and we were in the cutting room and Stanley Kubrick was on the lot doing post on The Shining. And Stanley called over to the cutting room one day and he said, hey, have you guys ever seen this movie Eraserhead? And we went, no, man, we've heard a lot about it. Would love to see it. And he says, well, it's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it 35 or 40 times. (laughs) I'd like to screen it for you Friday night in in the theater here at Elstree. 
And so, great. <laughs> we went to a racer head, and that was wow. my introduction to David. <laughs> uh, and then the first one y'all worked on was Blue Velvet. Uh, yeah. And that, at one point, even had, I think, like four hours. I think, I mean, Wild at Heart as well, but like, how, what was it like working with him and kind of establishing this language that y'all have almost, I mean, I will say perfected based on the most recent output of, of this relationship. But uh, what was it like first trying to, to work with him and, and figure out what this product would be? Well, again, I mean, I didn't know David and he had his pick of editors, I'm sure. But but he wanted, I think because of his good friend, Alan Splett was living in Berkeley and Alan's such a great sound guy. And David wanted to do hit the post in the in in at Berk in Berkeley at Fantasy. And there's only a couple of people up there and you know, I'm sure I was a name on the list and so I flew down he called and I flew down to LA and met with him and, you know, read the script and then decided to do it. And you know, it's funny, you it's not so much I don't think it's so much the director. The director, of course, has enormous input on what the material is and how it's played and and all the nuance and everything else. But you study the film. You look at what is the film telling you. And George always said, the first thing you do when you get to the cutting room is throw the script away. Well, you know, that's kind of a startling statement to a lot of people. And especially somebody like David, who's writer and director. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd say, well, I don't know what that script says, David. I threw it away. (laughs) 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 You look at me like, what? (laughs) No, it doesn't matter. I'm looking at the film now. The film is telling me what it is. And I think that's something that that I learned from George and from Marsha both and forever thankful, but it's, you just study it. You just look at it. What's the expression? What's the emotion? What's, what's going on here? You know, what color temperature is it? And then you build that scene around it. And David, I think David maybe saw just very, very little while we were cutting. He was so busy shooting and I was cutting away and I just wanted to, you know, do my best job and maximize the material. And so we came back to Berkeley, finished the shoot in North Carolina, came back to Berkeley, and we sat down to screen the movie about a week later, and it was three hours and 57 minutes. And so I was back in a familiar environment, um, having worked at at Fantasy on on Cuckoo's Nest, and... You know, we screened the movie, and when it was over, David sat there for a minute, and I was very nervous. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I may not even be here tomorrow, mm-hmm. and he's kind of smiled and said, I like it. I like it just the way it is, and I thought, whew, okay, and then he said, I just have one problem, and I'm thinking, okay, what could that be, and he said, for me to have final cut, it has to be less than two hours in length, which meant... <laughs> We had to cut this thing in half, oh, no. and so it, it 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 that started a very painful process, but a process that I think as we worked through it, it both sides gained trust in the other side, and right. you know we had uh, the objective was the same, 
And, you know, I would get down and it, I mean, it got to, we got to get two more minutes out. We got to get 30 seconds out. We got to get another seven seconds. It was painful. And finally, uh, that movie is exactly three frames less than two hours in length. And that's just, just in case the negative cutter made a mistake somewhere. <laughs> that's so great. And I mean, the end product is incredible. And, and then, of course, you go to Wild at Heart and then you get to Twin Peaks and that pilot episode might be the best pilot episode of TV of all time. Uh, what was kind of, because I know all of this was kind of happening at the same time, what was it like going into that world of Twin Peaks? And then, I mean, that was almost exactly 30 years ago that it premiered, I think, last week, uh, 30 years ago. Looking back on it all, what was kind of the, the crux of it for you? Well, again, you know, nobody knows when you, when you set out, look, Star Wars, the 20th Century Fox didn't want to complete Star Wars. So all of these projects have, you know, something going on behind the scenes and nobody ever knows. Nobody knew Star Wars was going to be that big of a hit. Nobody, not in their wildest imagination. (laughs) And so something like Twin Peaks, David had called me and he said, ABC is going to give us like $4 million dollars. Um, they're never going to air this thing, but let's just go have some fun and make a movie. I said, uh-huh. count me in. <laughs> and it, and they had a lot of characters in it. And again, you get, you just naturally get absorbed in the environment, in the world, in the characters and what they're doing. And I agree with you. And I appreciate you saying uh, kind things about that pilot. That pilot is liquid gold, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We screened it once on the big screen. We screened it at the Directors Guild one night. And that that's one of the very best screenings I've ever been been in attendance. It just uh-huh. that movie just poured out and it's beautiful. I mean the yeah. beats are just you know, and that just happened. I mean it it you just you know, somehow, you know, editorial we tapped into something. We found a groove and we were able to mine that groove and, you know, and it was great. And that's obviously with David's input. And, you know, again, that was such a short, I think he shot it in about 22 days. So it was very, very quick. And uh, again, nobody, we didn't think they were going to air this too weird for network television. Uh And then all of a sudden they, you know, they, they, I think it was Bob Iger at abc at the time and he was a champion and they had done their you know nielsen ratings and so forth and you know the comments were terrible and they picked up seven episodes and it's those first the pilot and those first seven will always be one of the best best experiences of my whole career that just the vibe around the whole thing from David and Mark and the cast and the crew. And it was definitely a family. And to this day, anybody that was involved on that first, those first, a very, very strong bond. I can't explain it other than that. We just experienced this all together. Uh, And then, I mean, that's why when it was announced that there'd be a third season technically of, of Twin Peaks, it was a little, I was both excited, but also nervous because of how perfect, especially that first season is. But then with the Showtime series, I mean, that's an 18-hour legendary movie. It's one of the best things ever put to screen. What was it like coming back into that world and then and then churning out something that is just masterful? I think that 
part eight, episode eight, is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen on a television screen. Uh, what was it like putting this kind of show together that was very unique in terms of, I don't think it'll ever be done like that again, and, and, uh, and coming back into a world 30 years later? First and foremost, what you're coming back to is, is an opportunity to work with a master, with work with David Lynch. And thoughts are always new and fresh with him. And his approach is ever-changing. Twin Peaks, as you know from the series, was a little bit like the Twin Peaks we knew with, with a lot of the characters that we knew from, from the first go-round. But it also had, we were in different dimensions, and Agent Cooper was four or five or six different characters. And, right. and um, you know, we were bopping all around. And I think in the beginning, David intended to cut it himself. Mm-hmm. And, and then pretty late, you know, well, at least before he started shooting, um, he asked me to come on board. And it was a daunting task in that, we had one year. We had one year. He started shooting the first part of September, and we had to have a locked picture the following September. The only thing is, um, when he and I first discussed the project, I said, uh, you know, how many episodes? I don't think of them as episodes at nine hours. And I laughed and I said, okay, David, you're nine hours. That means it's going to be 10, 11, 12. And he laughed and chimed in or 13 or 14. (laughs) We laughed about it. Yeah. And no kidding. That thing grew from nine hours to 18. Yeah. But we didn't have one extra day. We still had that one year. So essentially we put together nine two-hour movies in the span of one year, 12 months. So it was huge. So a big part of that was, and David didn't see anything. Uh, maybe he saw a couple reference things along the way, but, but we didn't, you know, because we were so far behind and he was still shooting. And when he finished shooting, like mm, the 23rd or so, third week of April, I said, David, give me a week, and then if you come come in, you go get some rest, and then come in, and we'll run the whole movie. Wow. And, yeah. And so I had to keep going, because I think at that point, when when we started that screening on a Monday, see, it took a whole week, because uh-huh. you, you can only absorb so many hours in a day. So, you know... I talked to Sabrina, his producer, and she said, okay, David wants to do it like this. He'll be in the studio alone. He'll screen it himself and on the big screen. And uh-huh. I said, that's great. Cause I got to keep, keep working ahead of him. Yeah. Ahead. And, and so he came in and you ready. And I said, ready. And <laughs> so he went in and Sabrina had told me, you know, he's only going to look at one episode a day and uh-huh. he's not, he's not going to tell us, when he wants to screen it, it's just going to be one a day. So I went to my crew and I said, okay, this is what the information I have, but here's what I think. I think David's going to like what he sees. And when he likes what he's going to see, he's going to watch two or three a day. And we better be prepared that he might even watch four in a day. So <laughs> we want to stay four hours ahead of him. Uh-huh. And it was crazy. I mean, they all had me on a timer and, and so, okay, David's got, 
you know, 12 more minutes or 10 more minutes or wow. you know, two more minutes. And I'm scrambling to get the next reel ready for him. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what he did. He'd watch uh, about three a day uh-huh. and that went Monday through Friday. And, and we had, you know, a pretty good, um, representation there. I mean, all the best bits were in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, David has his stamp and then, and how do you go forward? Because now you have 18 hours of, of story and you now only have June, July, August, three months to lock it all down. So we agreed that, um, you know, there's certain things like real eight, the, certainly that atomic explosion right. So David, you're the only one who knows what this is. Doesn't do any good to try and explain it to me. Why don't you just do this? And here's a <laughs> list of things that, that, you know, that I think you'll agree with, you know how to do this and you know what's in your mind. So maybe, maybe that's the best way to move forward. And then he and I together worked on about the first three hours. So the opening of it, we really went round and round and round trying to find our groove in, Mm -hmm. in this new uh, twin peaks. And then, you know, then we left the picture department, left and David finished it up and did the sound work and um and then it and then it came out and it's just yeah. amazing to me that it <laughs> it it was a lot of work I'll tell you that <laughs> that's great I mean I even saw I think I saw a picture of your editing suite with the color-coded index cards on there incredible I mean like just what you had to keep t- track of the, that huge cast uh, really really incredible stuff obviously I learned the card system from George Mm-hmm. and then I used it. I've always used the card system, and David and I used it very successfully on Wild at Heart because it was pretty long in its first go-round, and we had to cut that down significantly. And But we did a lot of restruct, restructuring, and it's so much faster to do on cards because your your thoughts are more present, and you just boom, and, and you know, you're just visualizing and thinking, oh, yeah, if I move that there, this causes this, that, and whatever. And it, it was so important because it was so big. We would have an important scene happen, let's say, in, in the beginning of the third hour, but we don't come back to it until the 11th hour. Mm-hmm. And you say, oh, look, you know, see that card there, that color? Look over here. That's the next time we come back to that story point. Mm-hmm. And is that too long? Because that's remember that's a week. That's one episode <laughs> each week. That's yeah. about three more months. You're not back. To that. <laughs> you know, so we, you know, the cards were very, very helpful on that one, just to keep a keep a sense of it. And David, you know, became kind of routine that he'd pass through on his way out at night, and we'd stand there in the middle of the room and kind of gaze at the cards and look <laughs> and. They hear some potential issues and, you know, what about this over here and da 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 and mm-hmm. just kept going. And, you know, it's it's David and it's David's material. But I think the most fun scene I had in that, well, I did like when the, the kid shoots up the diner and Bobby's mm-hmm. in there and Shelly and Becky and, and then they come out and the crazy lady and the barfing child and, you know, it's yeah. just classic Twin Peaks. But I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun with the scene where the character Red, it's just the two of them. And it's this weird back and forth. It's kind of scary. It's kind of exciting. It's, 
you know, only the flip of a coin and it winds up in his mouth and it's like all this stuff. And, uh, that was a great, that was a lot of fun, that scene, a lot because David's material is so interesting and you could, you know, you could explore and he's in, and, and that's, what's great about David is you, he, you know, if, if a scene wasn't working, it simply is you haven't gone deep enough because it is there in David's stuff. It is, it's not in everybody's stuff. It's hardly in, you'd be surprised how few people can mine as deep as David. And he, you know, there's a way to put it together and a way to amplify it. And, you know, I think that's, that's always the challenge with, with his stuff. Well, I mean, you've, you've certainly rose the challenge and uh, thank you so much for this interview. I've interviewed so many people I've admired and, I really don't think I've ever gushed this much, so I'm about, to edit out. I'm about to edit out a bunch of that so no one ever hears it, but Mr. Dunham, thank you for, for taking the time and, and talking. It, it is a real honor. My pleasure, and, and thanks for the kind words. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank Mr. Dunham again for such an incredible interview, as well as his mind-blowing work over the years. If you haven't watched Twin Peaks The Return yet, buckle up and get ready to have your life changed. Next week, gearing up for the end of the Siege of Mandalore, is a Star Wars 101 deep dive with the legendary Sam Witwer. You won't want to miss this. So, until then, stay tuned, leave a 5-star review, and may the Force be with you.